If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. This week on Equity, Rover's raised a big round, Uber's making waves again, and China is about to see its biggest IPO in three years. Hello, and welcome to Equity. I'm Connie Loises, Silicon Valley editor here at TechCrunch. I'm joined by TechCrunch's Matthew Lindley. Hello. Crunch-based news editor-in-chief Alex Wilhelm. Hello. And our guest, Jonathan Abrams, a co-founder and managing partner of Founders Den and the founder of Nuzzle, a news tool used by business people. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks, Connie. We're doing our very first remote podcast session, so if there's a bump in the road, don't be surprised, (laughs) and please be patient as we work our way through it. To start off, we are talking about Rover today and its enormous new round. Lindley, you want to kick us off? Yeah, so uh, reporting live from 400 miles um, away-ish, so we have another big dog walking, sitting, whatever you want to call it, app that's raising a ton, ton, ton of money. It's a 155... a million round, which is a combination of a $30 million credit facility from Silicon Valley Bank and then a bunch of funds and accounts advised by T. Rowe Price Associates, uh, again, uh, contributing $125 million for the rest of the round. Um, and so if you'll recall, uh, we, uh, we had a good time talking about WAG, which is another dog-sitting and dog-walking app, which also raised an enormous sum of money. I think it was $300 million or something like that, led by yeah. SoftBank, the ever-present titan that is permanently altering the calculus of fundraising in Silicon Valley and allowing dog-walking apps to raise more than $100 million whenever they want. So, uh, yeah, dogs. How do we feel about dogs? I think we're very pro-dog. I think, I think the only thing I don't like about this is I'm not quite sure why two dog-walking companies need nearly a half billion dollars between them to run a business that should be pretty profitable on a unit economic basis. Like I, I just The amount of capital is scary, and the argument that we heard before that uh, you know, SoftBank wants WAG to kind of buy the market now doesn't hold up because a competitor has a pile of money as well. So I don't really know where this is going to go, but it does feel very 2018 uh, to me. You know, the founder—I'm sorry—the investors in Rover basically had no choice, though. It was either you know try to compete with WAG or, or drop out of the race. Um, but to your point, Alex, I don't think these companies are profitable, which is kind of crazy. Um, I think that they—you know—WAG especially spends so, spends so much on um, marketing. Of course, Rover is going to have to kind of you know match that, I would guess, uh, in order to reach you know the same amount of customers. I think a lot of that that money is going into self walking dog technology. Oh, <laughs> that would explain a lot, actually. I mean, you know, to be fair, like, I mean, SoftBank is distributing enormous amounts of capital, but, you know, if I'm, if I'm, wa- or sorry, not WAG, Rover, Dog Vacay, whatever you want to call it, it's the same company now. Um, or it's, they're all the same company. But, anyways, so if, but if I'm Rover, you know, I, and I'm looking at WAG, putting up billboards over at Caltrain and all this other stuff, and I'm sort of sitting here being like, okay, well, WAG just had that crazy report about, it not being so good and Bloomberg and they're raising all this money and they're trying to burn all this spending. What if I just raise enough money to kind of wait it out a little bit and let WAG burn through all of its capital while we just sort of like try to slowly methodically grow and see, you know, you know, see, see what we can do and see, see if we can sort of like outlast their, their crazy marketing spend and things like that. And obviously like the dog walking business is, is massive, right? I mean, it's like, if you don't have a dog friendly office, you can't just leave your dog at home for eight, nine, 10 hours or, or something along those lines. So, so I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, 
Sure. And there's certainly no shortage of people who are looking for part-time gigs. And I think uh, WAG and Rover both charge about uh, $25 an hour uh, or half an hour, excuse me, for a walk in San Francisco, um, reportedly $20 for the same amount in New York, Chicago, Austin, and Seattle. And uh, I think walkers get 20% of that, uh, some from Rover and 40% from WAG. My concern, I will tell you as a pet owner, I mean, I stories and I can relate to them and I've talked to people who've lost their dogs. You know, I think they all sort of stress the high quality of their walkers, but I don't know that I believe it, to be honest. If the walkers only get 20%, why would they not try to eventually exchange their, you know, email address with the people and end up just sort of finding their own set of clients and getting all the money. Sure. It's the same, you know, it's a perennial problem. I think that was sort of true of TaskRabbit mm-hmm. and, you know, many other sort of like, ba- you know, baby care yeah, services. I think it's true of babysitting mm-hmm. or, um, or, uh, or cleaning any you know, maids, but it's not true of like Uber or Lyft because when you're just trying to get a ride, you want somebody to come like really quick and you don't really care that much but with a dog walker, they might just, you know, end up deciding to, to work directly and, and get all the money rather than only 20%. Absolutely true. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I had sort of learned about these uh, companies years ago before I had a dog. I now have a nine-month-old puppy and I, my perspective has changed considerably. Oh, my God. Puppies. <laughs> they are pains in the butt. Don't get one. Yeah, I've got two and uh, they make me want to cry. Well, sorry, to Lindley's earlier point, my fiance is two. I have none, but I take care of two dogs. Uh, and I'm kind of amazed at how much work it is just to keep them from dying on a day-to-day basis. But the thing is, I... Well, that's, that's the point. Somebody who, you know, a lot of these walkers, if you check their um, credentials, they were dog, you know, owners as children. They grew up around dogs. But there's a big difference between being around a dog as a child and recognizing sort of how wily a dog is and how easy it is for a, you know, freaked out dog to run out the door. I think that's why we're seeing a lot of these stories about people losing dogs. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Rover, you know, Rover on its on its website says like literally right on the front page that it accepts less than twenty percent of potential sitters, and it has more than two hundred thousand sitters across North North America. So it's clearly trying to like make that pitch that like no, we're we're super super careful about you know the people that are going to be taking care of your dogs, which you know they're a member of your family, right? Like you pay their medical bills at vet at vets, and you feed them and all that other stuff, and hopefully they are not too much of a terror in your household or something like that. Um, no dogs are bad. So, um, but, but I mean, they're, they're trying to stress that. So, I mean, if you, if we're talking about, you know, customers graduating into direct relationships with those, with those walkers that they find the good ones, I mean, theoretically, if they just kind of keep it at a drip, 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 they haven't, they might not actually hit that saturation point. I mean, we sort of sit in the San Francisco bubble where there's what, like 800, around 900,000 people in San Francisco that, you know, grows around like maybe one to 3% annually. So, I mean, obviously there's not like 900,000 dogs, right? But there, you know, that's like a relatively small number compared to some of the major cities, you know, across North America, whether that's Houston or Chicago or Dallas or, or New York. And, you know, they're, Maybe there's literally like an endless supply of dogs that have yet to be walked through WAG or Rover. Maybe there's like a a very, very, very large supply of good sitters that, you know, have yet to sign on to those, sign on to those platforms. So they can, they can kind of make it through uh, while they, you know, while they sort of figure out their next businesses. I mean, obviously they're both kind of charging into their, charging into each other's territory with uh, dog, you know, with WAG getting into you know, dog boarding and Rover, which is originally dog boarding, getting into dog walking. So they're really rapidly becoming kind of like the same company. So maybe this is sort of a situation where like you, you, you know, we're, we're getting to that point where 
because they're so similar and because, you know, like they, like you said, there's that constant risk of, of just making those direct customer relationships. Like these guys got to come up with a new product, right? They got to figure something out. And I think they are. First of all, they're, they're, they aren't in that many markets. I was sort of surprised to see that Rover's just in eight markets, two of them in New York, Manhattan and Brooklyn, and then LA, Denver, Portland, Chicago. I can't remember the last. Um, and so I think part of this funding is to move into the UK and then across Western Europe. So there's, you know, geography to take over. Also, it is going to be expanding into different services, including grooming and vet services, which is sort of interesting and not surprising. But, you know, these guys are raising so much money. I mean, it's... I wonder if anybody did any secondary as part of these these huge rounds, because if I was an early employee, angel investor, seed mm-hmm. investor, and I'm not in either of these companies, I'd be you know probably considering doing that because these are huge, huge, huge rounds. Absolutely. And, you know, and then, you know, like like we said, there's a little, so much money sloshing around and who knows where it goes. And it'd be, you know, probably a good time to de-risk some of that. Absolutely. I wonder, did WAG have a secondary? Do we know? Was that 300 million? Um used in part to buy secondary shares anyway. Rec- I mean, it's SoftBank. So. That, that, that's my first impression. Like I, my reaction, my recollection was that it was primary, but I, I, given that it's SoftBank, who knows? It could easily have been partially secondary. But as a data point, in my apartment building in SF, it's a dog-friendly building. And there are, I think, six or seven WAG locks on the front uh, front steps, people that put their keys in so dog walkers can get in. I've been really impressed by WAG's ability to actually grow inside of that relatively competitive market. So, I mean, I joked earlier about how much money there is here and, you know, we all agree it's a lot, but at a minimum, they're picking up a lot of customers, or at least it seems that way, but yeah. my impression in the, in the, one of the most competitive markets for startups in the U S and like, let's, let's be clear here for a second. Like this is, you know, even if it's like literally just dogs, Pet ownership is a crazy big market. I mean, we saw Petco pretty much bet the company on Chewy's. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the exact acquisition price was. But there's other things in the market like BarkBox and 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 other other businesses. And right, so there's like you know there's 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 no shortage of of companies trying to you know rethink how to make your dog happier, even though dogs are the happiest things in the universe, um, and just bring joy to all things around them. Anyways, long story short. Um, you know, I, I feel like there's. It does seem like you know, if you if you have a company that's kind of figured out a, a business model that can at least get off the ground, you know, now is the, now is there's there's room for, you know, there are definitely other business models that you can expand into. Whether you want to kind of charge into BarkBox's territory or, or figure out something else that's new. But no matter what, they've got almost infinite money now between the two of them to do it. Um, and that is a reasonable segue to another company that has raised a kajillion dollars and also loses money, and that's Uber, which. This week in Uber is back, um, but appropriately this time because it's not a scandal. Actually, Uber released its uh, Q1 financial performance. And if you recall, Uber's been doing this uh, for some time now. They've essentially been disclosing their performance on a regular basis, even though they're still private, um, kind of as a way to control the narrative and kind of as a way to show the company's maturing uh, process, if you will. Anyways, the company had $11.3 billion in kind of gross platform spend, um, from which it derived about $2.6 billion in what we call net revenue. Uh, and just as a data point, about $1.5 billion of the gross spend was Uber Eats, about 13%. And there were a number of profitability metrics that were brought up. But the one that I've selected for us is adjusted net loss, which was negative $577 million for the quarter. I think they wrapped up with four and a half or $4.6 billion in cash, not inclusive. Uh, restricted cash. So that's kind of the, the latest numbers. And I'm curious how we feel about them and if we're impressed by the less money that it lost or we're still surprised that it's losing that much money uh, this far into its life. Well, it's also like, keep in mind, 
Uber is getting the heck out of markets that it's not winning, right? Like it, it, it pulled out of China and it's pulling out of Southeast Asia and it's trying to figure out like where that strategy works. So obviously that's, that's a way to start getting your losses under control. And, you know, it, we could sort of look at Uber and say like, okay, it's getting more profitable. Maybe Uber Pool is working really well. Maybe Uber Eats has like insane margins that we're not thinking about or something along those lines. Um, but it shows that they are getting more efficient and actually getting to the point where they're saying, oh, well, crap, like we actually have to run a real business. So like we should probably stop running bad businesses like sitting in Southeast Asia or sitting in China and getting our, you know, getting our asses handed to us. Bleep, bleep. I don't know if we can, bleep, we have to bleep that one out, but, um, you know, getting, getting, you know, getting our butts kicked by, by DD and these other companies. So, um, I mean, I think it's like, it seems like it's a good thing, right? I mean, it seems like it's a, it's a positive, you know, positive direction to go in. I mean, we'll see if, you know, we'll see if after they pull out of these markets that they're clearly bad at, they're able to turn around and make money, you know, TBD, but uh, it seems like a good start. I mean, the thing that I'm most curious about is if you pull out of these these relatively large markets, like in China is not a small market to remove yourself from, Russia is not a small market to get out of, how much does that limit their ability to grow their aggregate platform spend? Because if that number has a lower ceiling than we expect, they're not going to be able to become as big of a company as we anticipated. And then their investors may be, I mean, not to be rude about this, but maybe have been overly optimistic about what it could be worth. And the company has consumed so much cash and investment along the way and has racked up sufficient debt that you know the wager is real. So I'm kind of curious how you feel about that. But on the whole, at least they're moving closer well, to profits. Go for Connie, sorry. I think, oh, no, I was going to say, I think what they never saw coming, obviously, was you know this sort of micro-vehicle revolution, e-bikes, e-scooters. I mean, I, I'm taking scooters now in San Francisco rather than Ubers. But Uber um, bought Jump, so they already now they're in that world, right? They bought the Jump Bike Company. Does the bike does the bike company have scooters? I was sort of wondering if they were going to sort of supplement. Uh, that I think with it's bikes, bike. not scooters, but it's but still it's it's sort of the same thing. It's people instead of walking, taking the bus, or mm. or driving, or taking an Uber or mm. Lyft, it's getting on a scooter or a bike, which right. is kind of a similar similar deal. And they right. probably go around the same speed. Yeah. And the idea the idea really is to avoid the vehicle traffic, right? Because there's sometimes when you're trying to take an Uber across San Francisco and the traffic is so bad. You could maybe get there faster in a bike or scooter. Yeah. Oh, I mean, like you, you're, you know, if I'm if I'm an Uber driver or something like that, like when you talk, when I at least when I talk to drivers, they, you know, they're they or even like cab drivers, are, and you know, not even which is surprisingly not too long ago, is, you know, there's a ton of money to be made off of like drop offs to airports or down to you know South Bay or something along those lines. And if you're just stuck in traffic in Soma, which is a, an absolute garbage nightmare in San Francisco. Um, you know, it's, it's a total waste of time for both the rider and the driver. So I guess like, it, you know, it sort of makes sense if I'm, you know, if I'm Uber and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to lose a ton of money in Soma and they only need to go 11, 12, 13 blocks. Like let's put a scooter down and that's just faster. And we'll say like, we're not going to make as much money off of an airport trip or something like that. But that's totally fine. Um, you know, we, we, there are some reports that Lyft was looking into something similar, like similar like that. And Uber's obviously put its money on, on jump bike or things along those lines. But, um, you know, to Alex's point that, you know, pulling out of China, maybe, you know, you're losing out at a, a billion humans or something like that. There are other markets that, that there are, you know, there, you know, in Brazil, for example, 99 is, is a, is a pretty, pretty substantial company that's, that's handling ride sharing. And, and so it's clearly like, okay, well in Sao Paulo, there's obviously a market for that. So now we have a target that we can go to, you know, you can go to, Oh gosh, uh, Mexico City. You can go to uh, pretty much anywhere, uh, and you're probably going to find some some Ubers there, right? So, so the uh, 
I, I would hesitate to say that, um, you know, not going into China is is removing a, a, a dramatic overhead when there's a you know, there's a couple other billion people on the planet. Right. So, you know, TBD on how that goes. Something I keep coming back to with these scooters is that they're much cheaper on a per ride basis because, you know, I take uh, a Lime scooter around Soma pretty frequently and they're a dollar ten, dollar fifteen, two dollars a ride. Uh, whereas, you know, I take an Uber, it's like twelve dollars to get across Soma. And so, you know, if you replace a lot of these rides with scoots, if you're like Lyft or Uber, you're going to have to see like, smaller revenues. And these companies are really, really priced as if they're going to keep growing. And that's something that I that I kind of think about because, you know, jump bikes cool, but it's not going to, you know, build Uber's revenue if it's taking rides away from the core uh, ride sharing component. Um but that's kind of like, you know, maybe a little bit ahead of ourselves. They still have to get to profitability at some point in time. They're still miles and miles and miles away from that. So lots to kind of keep an eye on. Absolutely. And I think the fact that they are reporting numbers when they don't have to as a, as a still privately held company is interesting. I also wondered if you guys have seen those ads. They're spending much more money on marketing during the NBA playoffs. Nice, I've caught a couple. Nice Dara nice on, nice on, on TV. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly, exactly. I, I just keep ad. thinking, you know, so Dara replaced Travis Kalanick, uh, you know, last year. And I just keep thinking, <laughs> he must want to like kick the TV every time one of those ads comes on because it so throws him under the bus. What's the what's the sort of tagline moving forward? Well, yeah, but I mean, something like that. Yeah, Travis, I don't know. I just I just find. But Travis deserved sort of to be under the bus himself. in this case. Like I don't know. He he earned all the opprobrium that he accretes to himself in the in the Dara era of Uber. So I I don't feel that bad for him. Also, Travis is rich as hell. So I that would break my rule of never <laughs> feeling bad for people that are worth more money than me. Um, which is, which is a lot of people. I still think these ads are. Have you seen, you know, Facebook similarly has a sort the of The Facebook contrite. ads are even weirder. I'm sorry, the Facebook ads? Yeah, I've seen, I actually did watch, uh, I guess maybe the Warriors or something. I saw those ads. I yeah. rarely watch TV ads and I saw them Same. both. And the Facebook ad is really weird. I totally Facebook agree. is like chairs, like, like, guys. They, We're not that creepy. They actually, <laughs> they actually admit that they had problems with the clickbait, the fake right. news, you know, and then they sort of say something happened. <laughs> Right. They sort of, which is right. a little vague. Right, right. And then we had nothing to do know, with it, people. Yeah, something just happened on Facebook, and you know, <laughs> we found some chairs. Get better. We found some chairs. What's What's really funny is I was watching. Um, while we're on the sports topic, I was watching the Cavs uh, Celtics game last night. because I'm trying to learn how to be a normal person. Uh, uh, all right. Sad. No. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Cavs. We'll go, go Cavs. Boo Celtics. But um, there was a Wells Fargo ad on. And the Wells Fargo, as, as everyone knows, has gone through a really rough time of it as well. They, they're in a similar sort of like uh, corporate perspective of re- rebuilding. And so they had a similar ad. They're like, we were born in 1852 and we've kept your trust until we didn't. But now we're back. And I was like, yeah, you can't say <laughs> that's no. so funny. You're exactly right. I forgot about that commercial. I mean, come on. Yeah, people like to make There's all this stuff about all the, the tech companies that are getting criticism now. But like – the non-tech big companies also do horrible Absolutely. things too. But I just, you know, we've talked about this on the show, but I, I, my, my thought is tech companies always pretended to be a little bit better. You know, Google was under the do no evil banner for a bajillion years. And so like, I presume Exxon is bad for the world. You know, I don't look at General Motors and go, ah, there they are, the moral arbiters of our time. But Facebook and Microsoft and, you know, Alphabet, they, they do claim to be more for people and improving the world. And so I think that's why we've always held them to a higher standard. And that's why some people get confused when people presume they are going to be a little bit more ethical than your average bank or uh, oil company. If we go to the Exxon website right now, I bet we're going to see something about how they are helping the world, not about exploding oil. <laughs> so I think if you go to any big company's website, you are going to see that they're that they're a great company. Well, that's because PR is a force for the universe. Um, yes. But anyways, on Uber's front, do we think they're going to stop losing money inside the next two years? Or do we think they're going to keep losing money for the next, uh, let's call it eight quarters? I'm kind of curious. My, my thought here is that they've they've pulled out of two marks that they're losing, right? And... 
they you know they they've they've been expanding into new markets and they they've sort of got a pretty good handle on like I was just down in Mexico City a couple days uh, a couple weeks ago and Uber was there and it was a great experience and it was way more useful than taking cabs or things like that so so they're they're out there but I mean obviously like you know Didi bought 99 down in Sao Paulo and so they've got to be dealing with them like they're it, it's going to come down to as Uber expands like how much they're going to have to deal with Didi which is the obvious massive juggernaut that is it's you know this is the company this is the company that kicked kicked its butt in china you know this is getting back to the uh basketball analogy you know the rockets were the ones the rockets beat golden state and golden state was supposed to be this sort of indestructible basketball team surrounded with uh filled with uh very very good basketball players um the rockets are the better team but whatever we'll that's we'll leave that for another another podcast but it's again it's like you know you have to there's a very obvious like scary competitor in the room but, what if but, DD merged with Lyft? Oh, God. How about that for an I, idea? DD and Lyft I, merging. The internet would collapse upon itself, and we would finally be starting from square one <laughs> with no technology. Is that a crazy idea? I, I don't think it's so crazy. But I was going to say, just domestically, they really do have to worry about Lyft here. I mean, Lyft just yesterday announced that it was going to spend $100 million on a network of new driver hubs to help their drivers get low-cost oil changes and basic maintenance. And I think they said clean bathrooms. And that makes a huge difference. But, you know, I mean, every driver I talk to says uh, they're happier uh, driving for Uber these days, but they're still not quite making enough money for it to be a full-time job. So this is a huge concern. They have to hang on to these guys. If you're in San Francisco and you take an Uber pool now, and I guess Lyft line is the same, you can go across the entire city for like four bucks. And taking the bus is like, what, two bucks? Yeah. So it's the question I have. Yeah. So the question I have is, is that, is, is, is Uber losing money every time you take an Uber pool across the whole city for only four bucks? Because four bucks seems so cheap. You know, and these drivers also don't know where they're going, which I only learned fairly recently. So if you say, I want to, you know, if you call them up and you're like, I want to go from San Francisco to Berkeley or Palo Alto, they have to take you. They lose a lot of money on those rides too, between their car maintenance and their time. And so it's, it's not a great gig in lots of ways, which is, I think, uh, also a problem for these companies. With the line, with the line thing, I think it's, I think it's habit building, right? I mean, every every company in the entire universe has always made the most money off of the whales, right? The the or at least you know, I'm sure most companies in the universe do that. Gaming companies, especially, it's that that sort of top one percent that generates ninety percent of the profits or or whatever the whatever the stat is, right? So, you know, if you're losing money on on Uberpool or Lyft Line, you're still building that habit. You're still building that that. Uh, momentum, you're still getting onto the front page of a person's phone to the point that, you know, it's Saturday night and we're out in Mission and I want to go home in Richmond. And obviously we've had, you know, maybe a little too much to drink or we are super full and don't want to deal with Muni or something like that. Oh, there's Lyft. I use it all the time for line. Fine. I'll pay the extra like 11 bucks to to get back to, to Richmond. So I, all the strategy, all these strategies, I think, make sense at scale in, in different ways. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, I think we should move on. But the cool thing is we'll know even more in three months because we'll have yet another public disclosure from a private company. Um, and so as long as Uber keeps feeding us all this information, we're going to be pretty up to speed on how Dara is doing in the great turnaround. But uh, companies that are going public include uh, something back in the China domain, which is something to do with the Foxconn. So, Connie, what's going on um, with that? 
So Foxconn, uh, which is the world's largest contract maker of electronics and China's largest private employer, apparently, uh, sort of flashed out plans this week to take one of its subsidiaries, Foxconn Industrial Internet, or FII, as I believe it's called, uh, public in what should be one of mainland China's biggest IPOs in almost three years. So this unit, people have probably read about a little bit. It makes electronic devices, and I think to a lesser extent, uh, cloud service equipment and industrial robots. And the plan is to offer 2 billion shares to public market investors at what's reportedly going to be a $43 billion valuation. So um, it's interesting for a long list of reasons, including that uh, China's uh, IPO activities kind of fallen off a cliff this year. And this is very important to the country, clearly. Um, as for what Foxconn gets out of it, uh, you know, it very much wants to diversify away from its biggest customer, Apple, uh, for one thing. And who can blame it, given what's happened to a number of manufacturers in the past who have sort of uh, fallen out of grace with the company. Back to the Shanghai, um, the Shanghai index's stock market. You know, back in 2015, there was a huge crash, and so to see this be the biggest IPO since 2015 mm -hmm. isn't a huge surprise, given the dynamics of the market over there. Um, but it is cool to see it kind of come back to form. But I accidentally cut you off, so please uh, pick back up. I was going to say, I you know, I think Foxconn wants to diversify away from its biggest customer, Apple, and who can blame it, considering like what's happened with sort of suppliers in the past. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you don't want to be too dependent on a single uh, purchaser, but this IPO is fantastically big. But the context that I'm that I'm stuck on is how many Chinese companies we've seen list on the U.S. Mm -hmm. this year. I mean, there was um, I'm going to butcher these names, so please forgive me. There's Huaya, which was an esports uh, streaming company that went public. A couple of weeks ago, did very well. There was the company called IQIYI I, uh, that went public, and there was another one as well, like Billy Billy, that was I think focused on like online content. So that's three that I can kind of name just offhand. There may be even more. Um, if they can bring those listings back to the Chinese shores, that'll be bad for the Nice and the Nasdaq, but pretty good for the local market. I'm optimistic about this sort of thing. I mean, we've seen a lot of really successful IPOs in the last oh gosh six, seven, eight months now. So there seems to be a lot of demand for this kind of share. I mean, I'm not that shocked by it. Lindley, what do you think? I mean, there's there's always been activity down in Hong Kong and and other places and sort of that that region. But I, I mean, if you look at like what was what was what was one of the largest IPOs in the past eight years? Well, Alibaba. It was Alibaba. Right. Alibaba, right? And Alibaba that was that was in the United States. So um, it and so it's it's one of those situations where. Uh, these companies are able to raise money and underwriters at like Goldman Sachs and the rest of those guys make a lot of money through the process. And obviously there's a lot of visibility that happens on the NICE or the NASDAQ or something along those lines. But it's, you know, it is lost capital and it is lost momentum and it is lost influence and it is lost, you know, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D through G. Um, so obviously it makes sense to want to, wanna, to want to bring that back. Right. And, and there's, you know, there's been multiple exchanges all around the world for, for, However, you know, for however long, right? Nikkei, FTSE, uh, NYSE, Nasdaq, all that stuff, right? So I, I think China's just, you know, as I was saying before, just getting much more aggressive about bringing these companies back. I think Alibaba has said that it might list uh, in China as well. Um, but, you know, another uh, sort of dimension of this is growing protectionism in the US. So I think China can sort of say, hey, you know, our, the, you know, Chinese investors get these companies. Um, you know, you're sort of slandering <laughs> our companies in our country. Um, so that's sort of another selling. Yeah, point. I mean, look at look at. I'm sure if uh, if I'm trying to pitch them on that, I can say, well, look at what happened with Broadcom and Qualcomm. No, that that that, that deal was that deal was shut down by the U.S. government. Oh, so, that's right. You know, that's, that was recently uh, too. 
that was that was a couple well, months I mean, ago. Couple but months it's it's you you that a massive exit like that was just shut down by the U.S. government. So you're not going to have to deal with that here or something along those lines. I don't know exactly what the yeah, pitch well, is. Yeah, I, I think I think the the overall point is that there's a lot of deep pockets that are that are hungry for tech shares both domestically for us and abroad. And if the pool is that deep, we're probably going to see a pretty good IPO run. I mean, so far this year, we've seen a much better IPO cycle in the tech world than we did in 2015, 16, and 17. So, you know, if China can get back into the game, that's going to make it even more fun for us that kind of watch the space. I mean, because IPOs are never boring. Even boring companies going public is still fun. So I say bring it on and the more the merrier. Actually, that's a pretty good segue. I'm going to take that one because a Dutch company uh, that you probably haven't heard of is going public. Uh, it's called Adyen, which is A-D-Y-E-N. And they were worth several billion dollars and they have indicated they're going to go public and they're going to go public on the Euronext Amsterdam. Uh, while we're on the subject of different exchanges. And they released their numbers, and they're quite good. They're a profitable company, and they're shooting for a valuation, uh, I believe according to TechCrunch.com, of between 6 billion and 9 billion euro, so roughly 7 to $11 billion. Um, we don't know kind of final pricing information, but this shows, again, the point that there is you know deep demand for tech shares abroad, um, and also among companies that uh, are in the unicorn category. So I'm kind of excited to see yet another um, Unicorn Republic. But the, the bad news for me personally is that I interviewed, I think, the CEO at Disrupt back in 2015. And I, uh, I hadn't worked out back then. And so I had to go through a bunch of pictures today of me looking kind of chunky on stage. Um, and that was really... <laughs> I just that look kind of really bald terrible. and fat. It's not great. Um, so anyways, if you see articles <laughs> with me in them Never looking, I, I, I promise I lifted weight since then. But Audion's going public. Yay! Uh, it's a Dutch company. Yeah, you know, I don't know anything about the company. I should, but I do remember that uh, uh, eBay dumped PayPal in favor of the company years ago. So, um, yeah, their payment volume is massive. <laughs> I mean, they had uh, 1.2 billion processed transactions in the first quarter of 2018, uh, which was up 50% from their Q117 of 800,000. And uh, they had net revenue of over 74 million. And looking at my notes here really quick. Uh, they had both free cash flow and positive net income off of that. So they're going public as a profitable company, which seems kind of rare given that we mostly talk about companies that lose money. Um, so I'm kind of cool. I'm, I'm excited to see where they price and how far they can get above their prior. I think it was the last private was like $2.3 billion valuation somewhere in there. So they're going for like a multiple of that, uh, which is aggressive and fun. So I'm stoked. Uh, and then last but not least, this week is Green Sky. Uh, went public this morning. And that's a company you also haven't heard of. They also work in the money space. They work in lending. And uh, they were worth about $4.5 billion at the time of their IPO. They priced at $23 a share, top end of their range. And they sold 38 million shares, which was an expanded offering. And they didn't have the world's best first day, uh, which is a bit of a surprise given how things have been going. Well, they opened actually a little bit below 23, uh, which surprised me. By the time that I covered them later in the day, they were up above their IPO price by a couple of cents, like maybe like 15 cents. Um, but we've seen a lot of companies open up 30, 35%, uh, and that wasn't the case here. So it was an IPO that I thought was going to be a little bit more bang uh, than it wound up being. Um, so maybe- Does this company compete with uh, Max Levchin's Affirm? Do they, are they so in the same- So Affirm, uh, if I recall, and tell me if this is wrong, is a way to check out online and make small consumer loans to purchase like a guitar or something. Is that about right? I think that's what they started with. Yeah, I know yeah. that's one aspect of the business. So, I, don't, I don't know. So Green Sky is kind of targeted. So I had to dig into its S1 because I had never heard of it. And if I understand the model correctly, people that are doing like home improvement projects spend a lot of money getting their kitchen fixed or their backyard redone, whatever. And so Green Sky works with banks and then individual like 
contractors and they provide kind of point of sale credit to consumers that are doing home improvement, which apparently is a big enough market to support the company. And then um, Green Sky just works with banks to handle the actual financing and they take a cut in between, which is pretty smart. Um, so it's kind of like a firm, but for one special IRL vertical, as opposed to kind of like a more broad based uh, solution. At least right now, that's the case. Uh, it, I think it's time for us to wrap it up. But I wanted to say, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more of these lending companies. T- Donald Trump today signed the biggest rollback of bank regulations since the global financial crisis. All right, we're done. We're done with the IPOs. Too many IPOs. <laughs> All right. Got, thanks for thanks for joining, everyone. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Matthew Lindley, Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week. 